Involvement with the criminal justice system is life-changing. It matters. Having a justice system that works is a really important part of a democratic society. I'm Penelope Gibbs, Director of Transform Justice. I'm Rob Allen. I've worked in and around criminal justice all my career. This is the Transform Justice podcast. Throwing light on the criminal justice system. Hearing from people who know. It's about whether the system's fair. And what can be done to make it better. Hello. This time we're focusing on a question that keeps being asked. Why do the police find it so hard to resolve crime? Our two guests may have an answer. They're Richard Horton, retired police officer, prize-winning blogger and now podcast host, and Rick Muir, director of the Police Foundation. The Foundation published a strategic review of policing in England and Wales last year. Also here, of course, is Rob Allen, my co-host. Rob, police numbers were cut significantly under Theresa May as Home Secretary. Is this something that you noticed in your local area? We did actually see two police stations closed during the austerity time, leaving just one in the borough that's open 24 hours a day. There's a small office on one of the shopping precincts that's very uh, rarely open, if at all. What, a kind of pop-up police That office. kind of thing. Um, whether or not that has translated into either more crime or worse detection rates, I, I can't say. I, I certainly get the impression there are fewer police around, but to be honest, there weren't that many even before Theresa May was Home Secretary. Rick, according actually to the best evidence, all crime apart from fraud is actually going down. And the majority of people still say that they're happy with their local police. So is the angst about police performance misplaced? Well, it's definitely true that crime has fallen over the long term, over the last 20 years, it's fallen by something like 75%. That's traditional crime, excluding cybercrime and fraud. Most of the reason for that is largely to do with improvements in home security, vehicle security, things like that. That's led to a fall in burglary, car crime and so on, rather than um, activities by the police. So the crime rate and police performance are two quite separate uh, things. Um, it's definitely true if you look at detection rates, which is one of the traditional things you measure the police by, you know, the percentage of crimes that are recorded and, and reported to the police that lead to a, a criminal justice outcome. Those have been going down. But, you know, there's lots of reasons for that, which are not, I think, really to do with police performance. They're to do with the crime mix is changing, new technologies making it more difficult to investigate crime. Yeah. Richard, crime is going down. Should there be media and public angst about police performance? There should be some media and public angst uh, about what the police are asked to do, I would suggest. I, I cast my mind back to areas we were never involved with um, during the early parts of my career, um, dealing with uh, unmet um, social and mental health need in the community. That has become a default uh, for the police. We used to do very little around domestic violence as a police service. It's what went on behind closed doors between partners. It was none of our business. That sounds terrible now, but that was a, that was a thing 30 years ago, and now we're much more involved in that. We have national crime recording standards, which have put an awful lot of work um, into the police in that every crime now is recorded and recorded on some fairly cumbersome and, and labour-intensive systems. Rick, um, 
we hear a lot, and Richard's just said, that the, um, the police um, apparently do a lot of things that aren't strictly or even at all related to crime. Do we have a handle on how much of their time is spent on these other things and, and, and what the consequences are? It, it's hard to say how much time is, I think. Um, you can look at what the public report to the police and the, the figure that's always quoted is that about 80% of calls into the police do not result in a crime being recorded. Now, you know, it may be that some of that, that 80% are related in some way to crime. You know, people reporting suspicious activities in their neighbourhood, for example, don't result in a crime being recorded. What kind of thing are you talking about? These suspicious activities. I don't know if you if you call up the police because you see some people who look like they're dealing drugs in the street, and then um, but you haven't got any hard evidence that that's what's happening. You've just got people hanging around in the street. Now that might not result in a crime being recorded. Might result in some intelligence that the police um, record. But it's definitely true that a large bulk of the calls coming in are not in any way related to crime. And Richard was just talking about huge increase in mental health demand on the police, huge increase in things like missing person reports coming in to the. Police. Police, a lot of this stuff which is not crime related and which is which is now taking up a huge amount of police time. But do you know how much? I mean, is there a metric for saying, okay, of all the, the amount of time that the police are in work, how much of their time is on crime, how much of it is on mental health, how much is on missing persons, or, or is that just not known? Police statistics aren't really collected nationally. They're collected locally, which is one of the challenges um, here in terms of measuring how much time is spent on, on different activities. So you see figures, for example, um, ranging from anything from 25% of police work is, is mental health related to sort of 65%. But I think it's clear from the figures that the number of cases in, that are flagged as mental health incidents has been going up. The number of Section 136 interventions has been going up. What's that? That's where the police are using their powers to detain someone under the Mental Health Act. So some core bits of what some people call non-police police work have been going up quite a bit over the last 10 years. I think it's also that austerity is hit for 10 years and it hasn't just hit the police. So if you take, for example, a Section 136 Mental Health Act detention, you found somebody in a public place who need immediate care and assessment the problem you will have is that the police officers will then be waiting with that person, often right the way up to and sometimes beyond the legal time that we're allowed to keep them detained because there are not sufficient resources in the mental health services to assess them in a timely manner. So you may be waiting 12, 14, in, in some cases over 24 hours before you get an assessment of that person. As a police officer, you're responsible for the care and the well-being of that person until such time as they're assessed and either released after the assessment or taken onto a more formal section and detained for longer as, as an, an inpatient. Yeah, I mean, I've read, Richard, about police officers sitting in A&E for hours, so many hours, that actually there's a shift change of police in A&E. That's very, very frequent. From my experience as a response sergeant, that's everyday business. So, Rick, I've read that the chief constable of Humberside has called time on this. He had a failing force and he said to his local mental health services, presumably, or hospitals, we're just not going to do that. So how come you've got most police forces sitting in A&E and the Humberside chief constable saying, 
no more. Well, yeah, it's very interesting that he's done that. And I, I think um, chief constables should be looking at this across the country, you know, because I, I don't think anyone thinks it's a good use of police time to be sat waiting in A&E for people to be assessed for hours and hours and hours. I think if the NHS has concerns about security or the safeguarding of a person, then they should make some provision in the hospital to deal with that. I think that the public would expect police officers to be called to incidents which have a mental health dimension to them. Very many incidents do. And the police then um, have to do what they need to do to promote safety, to, to make sure people are well and so on. But once they turn up at the hospital, I think it's then time to hand those people over to the NHS. The police are not trained mental health workers and um, it should be for the health service to, to, to manage people once they're, once they're brought into hospital. Yeah, and I would say that our report on assaults on police suggests that actually some of those happen when the police are called to a mental health incident, which doesn't get the threshold of a hospital admission. That person's in mental health crisis and they lash out at the police. And that is a sort of very tragic byproduct of the fact that the police are going to these mental health incidents, which they may not be sufficiently trained to deal with. Section 136 is is an emergency power. It was never, I think, meant to be used as frequently and as often as it is. But there's nobody else. We used to have a certif outreach teams. We used to have a care in the community for people with mental health um, issues that was properly funded, properly resourced and, and was effective. And I don't think we have that anymore. Richard, um, I think it's the case, you may have mentioned it, that the police spend quite a lot of time looking for missing people. But I suppose my question is, if the police aren't going to do that, who is? Are there agencies, people, organisations that could do it rather than the police? We are now far more acutely aware of um, welfare concerns, particularly where you have young people who are being exploited um, in care, who are going missing from home. Uh, And again, is the care that they're receiving um, sufficient to start addressing the risks that that, that are present in their lives? No, not, because we have young people who are going missing every couple of days. Uh, We have to declare them as a high risk because if we have information that they're at risk of child sexual exploitation or county lines or they themselves are committing crime against other people, that's a high-risk situation and we have to put a lot of resources into trying to find that young person as quickly as possible. And of course, they're putting resources and people around them may be putting resources into them not being found quickly. But that's, again, a very resource-intensive stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's important work nonetheless, and I guess somebody needs to do it. And you're saying that really it shouldn't just be the police or, or even the police. If the police weren't doing this stuff, would they then have enough time to concentrate on improving the clear-up rates, solving more crimes, the kind of stuff we were talking about that's, if you like, core police work. What do you think, Rick? Well, yes. I mean, if there, were, if there was less missing persons demand, if there was less mental health-related demand, then the police would have more time to deal with, with other issues. There's no, there's no question about that. The goal should be to prevent more of those types of crisis demands so the police can focus on, on many of the other issues that the public expect them to deal with. Well, one of those issues is domestic abuse, which has really come high up the agenda. Dave Thompson, the just-retired Chief Constable of the West Midlands, got into huge trouble when he said it was, quote, debatable whether or not these kind of safeguarding issues are actually something best charged by the police in all cases. Richard, have you got any understanding of what Dave Thompson was getting at? Kind of. um, The main 
thrust around it is addressing vulnerability and safeguarding. From a police point of view, I think that's the thrust of what we're trying to do around domestic violence. And usually we'll do that by arresting uh, a suspect and trying to secure sufficient evidence for a charge or, or failing that uh, DV prevention order to keep them apart. So in over half of police domestic abuse call-outs, the alleged victim refuses to cooperate. It's certainly incredibly difficult to get a prosecution where you don't have a statement or evidence of injury. We're not always entirely focused on the conviction. There are other things you can do around a victim. You can put in an independent domestic violence advisor, an IDVA, to have an intervention that will make them a little bit safer, even if we can't get a conviction, which may not make them any safer at all at the end of the day. We're looking a little bit wider, maybe at trying to address that vulnerability. And obviously, I mean, it's a really, really serious problem to resolve. But Rick, that has been quite a consistent figure, actually, for a long time. If police resources are going to be well used, do we need to get smarter about domestic abuse uh, call-outs? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think, um, and obviously it's a, it's a difficult thing for, for victims um, because, you know, you're talking about someone that they're living with and um, they, you know, uh, have, very often have a relationship with. And so it, it is difficult for, you know, for people to want to proceed with that in uh, into the criminal justice system. Um, so I think, as, I think Richard's right. I think you should pursue um, these cases where you can, but you you also need to take a wider lens as well around safeguarding the victim, um, looking at what can prevent these things from happening again. Yeah, I mean, Rick, looking a bit more widely, I mean, the police often complain about the burden of recording crime and having to kind of record every single thing. And in some cases, there even seem to be more crimes recorded than there are victims saying they've actually suffered from the from the crimes, which seems odd but I mean do you think there's an argument the police are being strangled by a kind of bureaucracy in this crime recording space? Yeah I I do think that I think the requirements now are are very stringent on what should be recorded Um, it's one of the reasons why the detection rates fallen because you know you've, you've got more crimes being recorded a lot of them will be quite trivial or tangential but that's why they weren't previously recorded and now you're having to record them and that's just adding more and more crimes into the into the figures and so therefore the percentage that are being resulting in some kind of criminal justice outcome is going down simply because of the um the accretion of these crimes and it's hmic frs that are making that requirement the inspectorate are making that requirement on police forces and i think we have to ask the question whether we've just gone too far with crime recording you know, how important is it that all of these things are recorded when the victim's not interested in, in a lot of these things being progressed? We have other ways of recording crime. We've got the crime survey, for example, which gives you a very good overall aggregate measure of the amount of crime. Um, so I think that we're recording too much crime that doesn't need to be recorded. And that is creating more and more bureaucracy and making police work harder to do. And how can it possibly be that in some areas of crime, For instance, I think some areas of hate crime, there is more crime recorded by the police than the victims say has happened to them. I think with the National Crime Recording Standards, you need to look at what the original idea behind it was back when David Blunkett, I think it was, had the idea. Mr Blunkett was pretty sure that the police weren't giving a fair shake of the stick to various minorities uh, and that we were not recording crime on their behalf properly and that we were what you call cuffing crime. So he built a system 
to try and make sure the police would never be able to cuff crime for minorities ever again. That appears to have been one of the driving forces for a national crime recording standard. And we're stuck with it. Unless you you trust us to say, well, you're now much more inclusive, you're a better police service, you're not so blatantly biased against minorities that you won't record crimes for them. Um, Otherwise, I think you're stuck with this um, straitjacket of the national crime recording standards. And it does result in some ridiculous crimes. I myself have crimed going to a telephone box where somebody had rung at three in the morning to report they'd been assaulted to find nobody, no sign of assault, no scene for the assault, still recordable as an assault. Crazy. Never going to be investigated, no CCTV, no nothing. It's just got to be recorded. And that takes 20 minutes. And then you have to put it to one side and never look at it again. But it's there as a crime record for an assault. Mm. Yeah, Rick, um, Richard mentioned uh, David Blunkett and, and New Labour. They were very keen on trying to improve police performance through imposing targets. Um, and I, I, it seems that the current government are also now back in the targets business. They want to see uh, 20% reductions in, in serious violence and in neighbourhood crime. What's your thinking on targets? Do they help or do they hinder? I mean, I'm not against all targets in all circumstances, in all public services, but I do think that a lot of the targets that we had in policing during that time resulted in all sorts of perverse outcomes. I mean, the most obvious of which was the offences brought to justice target, which meant that the police were just you know, nicking people for low-level offences so they could meet the, the targets. And that, that's not the police's fault. They're, they, you know, they're being told to do it. Policing is a is a difficult business. It's got a very diverse range of objectives. And if you focus them too hard on one or two things, then they'll you know end up neglecting the rest. I think it's far better to set some goals locally that people can work towards um, and which can be sensitive to the local context. Actually, what I'd rather see is shared outcomes across local public services. I'd rather see um, local public services, for example, the health service, the police, local authorities say, you know, we're going to do something to prevent more young people going missing from care homes, for example, or we're going to do something to prevent people getting into mental health crises. And we're going to set some objectives around that locally, which we can then work to. Um, But I think think very often national targets get in the way because the other thing they do, of course, is they stop the police working collaboratively with other services because, um, you know, national government's got one agenda and then the local services will have other things that they're trying to achieve. So I, I think it's, yeah, I think I think going back to national crime reduction targets is, is a mistake. Yeah, I remember when I was on the Youth Justice Board, we had a chief constable who told us about uh, one of his officers who went to visit a woman who'd rung in to say her daughter was taking money from a handbag. Could she? Could an officer come and talk to the daughter? The officer turned up, marched the daughter down to the police station, recorded a crime and, and solved it all in one go. There was your offence brought to justice, but wasn't really the intention. But, I mean, this time round, there is an effort to try and make these targets, particularly on serious violence and murder, I think, homicide. Um, is Is that a bit better when you're actually targeting perhaps the most serious crimes i think on that going back to big volume crime targets would be would be a mistake uh, i understand why the government wants to focus the system more on tackling you know serious crime and you know that's that's absolutely fine you know whether setting targets for things like homicide is is a useful thing to do i'm not so sure i'm not against measuring performance the question is whether you then make it into a into a sort of target with some punitive sanctions attached to not achieving the target um, i think the police need to be accountable you need to collect the statistics you need to 
to, to look at their performance in the round over time. And there's already a system through HMIC um, to put police forces into effectively into a kind of special measures if they're not doing well enough. So I think there's already ways of doing that. And I'm not sure having these additional national crime targets is really going to help. Richard, is there any meaning for the police in having a target to reduce homicide? No. Let's keep it really simple. I, I suppose if you were looking at some of the drivers of homicide in our larger cities, um, you're perhaps looking at gang-related violence and what work can you do to disrupt those uh, gang organisations. And that's a wider piece of work. But there's a lot of homicide that I don't think is particularly susceptible to police action, unfortunately. But the, the, there are certainly areas where you could do work, um, but it's got to be work beyond the police. I mean, there's work to be done in education, work to be done in social services, work to be done in uh, sort of broader health. Um, there's a lot of talk about working together and holistic approaches and, and getting downstream of the problem, but it doesn't actually seem to happen very much. There's potential in that, that sort of whole problem approach, but setting a, a sort of national target, 20% reduction in violent crime and homicide, it worries me, frankly, because it's just a, if it's just a demand that's made without the resources, without the, the banging heads together work, it's not going to get you very far except be another stick to beat the police with. And I, I remember listening to your podcast and you talked about um, the sort of backfire effect of a target on serious violence and you were asked to look into the figures. Tell us about what happened then. Okay, yeah. When you get to a promotion stage in the police, you're given a project to do. And my project was, why has there been an increase in serious violent crime this summer as opposed to last summer? So I looked at the previous summer's serious violent crime and it did seem low. And then I looked at the previous summer's non-serious violent crime and found that there was stuff in there that was really serious violent crime that had been downgraded to get a reduction in the previous year's target. And so when it came to this year, we'd gone back to normal recording. It looked like there'd been an increase. But in fact, nothing statistically significant had happened at all. Not at all. So the officers had been given a target, in effect, and had played with recording in order to meet their target. There had definitely been some playing of recording. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that that one place I was working in was the only place that was cooking the books to make targets. Yeah. Another example I'll give... I make an arrest out on the street on a Saturday night as the sergeant on the team. So I'm taking my prisoner into the back of the van and one of my came to me and said, Sarge, I said, yes. He said, what it is, we have a target for arrest per month and you don't. And the penny dropped. And you sort of said, okay, you take him in, you have the arrest, that's fine. But actually, that's just inefficient. It's daft, it's... it's I'd be every month having to speak to a chief inspector about my team's performance. Officer X, why did they do 10 stop searches last month and this month they've only got five? Well, one, you're looking at a 30-day period and it doesn't mean anything. You know, because they were doing different things this month. They had different demand this month. They didn't do as much proactive work because they had more reactive work to do. But you're still held accountable on these very small sample-sized crazy targets that are very arbitrary and don't mean anything. And for my money, don't add anything to, to policing. I hope we don't get back to that very granular red, amber, green stuff again. Um, and I hope if we're setting a target, say 20% reduction in serious violent crime, homicide, that it's not just left to the police, that everybody's brought in it and are resourced to do it. Because that's the other thing. If you don't resource it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, Rick, one of the other things about targets, of course, is that 
there are different bits of the system that impose them. So with the police, you've got the Home Office, you've got the central government saying one thing, but there are these police and crime commissioners who, on the face of it, are responsible for performance of police services locally. You've got the inspectorate that you've mentioned that also has its own way of measuring performance. I mean, it looks a bit from the outside that there are just too many hands on the tiller, really. Is, is that your view? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, and in some ways, what, what Theresa May was trying to do with police and crime commissioners was to sort of simplify it in a way, which was to not have the national targets and just have a local person doing it. I mean, I'm with Richard on this. What we're talking about in a lot of these issues is about complexity. And I think what you can't deal with when you're doing crude, simplistic targets is deal properly with the complexity of the, of the situations that local police officers are dealing with. It would be far better if at the local level, the police and crime commissioner, health authorities, local authorities, education authorities, if they can um, agree a set of shared objectives for the place and everybody in that place can work towards them. So in the States, Rick, um, they have the same complex social problems and they have police and the campaigner's answer partly is something called the defund the police movement and the idea of that was that the answers to resolving crime lie mostly outside the hands of the police and the criminal justice system that whole movement has been given short shrift in the UK and your strategic review seemed to back funding rather than defunding and the defunding idea is that resources which might be with the police go to places where the crime could be prevented. But are you opposed in every way to the defund idea, even though you're talking about this complexity and local agencies and all this kind of stuff? Well, I'm not against um, prevention. <laughs> so I'm in favour of prevention. So that side of the argument, I totally agree with. And actually, I think most police officers would agree with that. You know, they would agree with what we need to be doing is preventing these things from happening in the first place. So we need more resources into mental health services. We need more resources into housing services, etc. But I don't think the answer is to take it off the police and give it to others. I mean, we did defund the police over the austerity period and the results were not great and the public wasn't very impressed by them. So, But maybe the problem was there was we defunded funded the police and we didn't give the resources to the places which could have prevented the crime. Well, we defunded everything. I think that was the problem, you know. And so the government was not trying to refund social services by defunding the police. It was trying to defund public services across the board. And that was a big mistake. But the I don't think there is an argument for defunding the police. I think there is an argument for refunding a lot of these other public services. And to be honest, if you were to give me a choice and, you know, Andy Cook, the chief inspector, has said this. If you gave me a billion pounds and said, should I put it into policing or should I put it into mental health or poverty reduction? I would I would go for mental health and poverty reduction over policing, because I think ultimately that's the thing that will prevent these problems from happening in the first place. It's a better use of the money. But I think the police do need resources. And there's lots of areas of police work where they're massively under-resourced. You know, I mean, all these new areas of crime, like cyber and fraud, child sexual abuse, lots of, every time you speak to people who are working in those units, you find that they're massively overstretched. Um, We need to fund the police properly to do their job, but we also need to fund these other social services as well. So I wouldn't make it into an either or. Yeah, there's not a word of that I disagree with. Uh, I think Rick's absolutely hit it on the head. If you had a massively overfunded police service that w- that was running around with, you know, sort of armoured cars, SWAT weapons, and just pouring a lot of money into it, and you could say, well, there's money we can take out of that here that we can put into social services, and that may be the American experience. I don't know because I've never worked in America. I don't know much about it. Here, everybody's been defunded. 
And so it's a nice idea intellectually, practically on the ground in the UK, it's not going to work. So the issue here is, is about making sure we're clear about what we want the police to do. I think part of the reason that it's such a big issue in America is it's partly because of the greater use of force by police officers in America, the police officers using firearms, which we don't we don't have as much of here. There's some evidence that the police have been moving into other areas of social work in America, which is problematic. In some American schools, for example, the police are providing school security. Well, I don't think anyone in this country would like to see the police providing security in schools. So I think what you need to do is focus the police on what they should be doing, what they're trained for, what they're best at, and then get the rest of the system working better to prevent these problems from happening in the first place. Um, And that might sound naive, but I don't think we have any other option if we want to solve these problems, actually. So I think robbing Peter to pay Paul isn't isn't the answer. Yeah, I remember um, Ian Blair, former Met Chief Commissioner, saying a few years ago that when the 20,000 new police were being proposed, he said he thought it would be better to to have 10,000 new police, but but spend the money that was earmarked for the other 10,000 on a, a wider range of things, on youth work, on mental health, and actually have local referenda or meetings or kind of decisions about how best to use that funding, which in a sense is a bit like justice reinvestment, which was a, a kind of concept a few years ago. So you're not robbing Peter to pay Paul, you're looking at the best way of achieving the outcome. Anyway, we've we've had a fascinating conversation. We need to, to draw it to a close. Can I ask each of you, Um, Richard, first, I mean, if you were Home Secretary, maybe you will be one day, but if you were, what what one thing would you do to to try and help the police to resolve more crimes? I I would get my colleague in health to properly fund, at local level, a mental health service that was sufficient to keep people out of mental health crisis uh, and out of the grip of coercive powers like Section 136. Okay. Rick, what about you? I I would make sure we get serious about prevention. We often talk about it. Everyone says we need to do this work, um, but it doesn't often happen. So I would get really systematic at the local level about preventing a lot of these problems from happening in the first place. And that's where a lot of the resource and the, um, the focus needs to be. What about you, Rob? What would you do? Well, I think having this kind of more localised approach in which the agencies are working, genuinely working together to try and solve the problems. It needs the leadership for that multi-agency. Maybe it's a public health approach, whatever you call it, but it really needs to happen. Uh, I mean, and I think what Richard was referring to is these conversations do happen, but there's not enough action as a result of them. So it needs that as well, I'd agree. Thanks, Rob, Rick and Richard. And do look at our programme notes for more information about the Police Foundation's strategic review and a link to Richard's podcasts. Rate both our podcasts very highly on whichever podcast platform you use and do drop us a line with any feedback. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.